season. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I've missed you. Uh, we got a lot going on this past week. It was really kind of interesting. Uh, we have got um, another bank failure and some other things from real estate to talk about. All of it, which I hope is going to be applicable to you as you drive your business, drive your life, whether you're an entrepreneur, intrapreneur, or a leader anywhere, because we're here to leave you better than we found you. Anyway, off and running. Well, I'm here with Kellyanne, the Swiss Army Knife, pulling charts, running clips, doing all these things while the biz doc talks. How are you doing? I'm really good, how are you? Anything crazy this past weekend? Ah, just recovering from the Sales Leadership Summit, getting some rest, uh, and more exciting stuff here at Valuetainment. Exactly, we have the Sales Leadership Summit, and that is something that uh, we have several live events a year that are put on by Valuetainment. The biggest one coming up is the vault, you don't wanna miss it. So everything we're talking about here at the Sales Leadership Summit, don't think, oh no, I'm gonna have to wait a year for something. No, 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 the vault <coughs> is coming up, and it is the Lord God King of the conferences we put together. But the Sales Leadership Summit in itself very important because it focuses on sales. And what we do is bring together a tremendous amount of content delivered by Patrick Bet David himself. And if you missed SLS, there's still opportunity. You can go to the Valuetainment store, valuetainment.com, and you can find Patrick's sales leadership course is for sale there. And so we had entrepreneurs, sales leaders, CEOs from all over the USA. Hell, it was all over the world, wasn't it? We, yeah. had, people, we had people from Canada, we had people from India. Europe. We had some guy from India. Flew a guy got an award for having the longest drive to the Sales <laughs> Leadership Summit. He was from India, which is such a great thing. And they were all talking about how they got to absorb that. And those are people that are building muscle for their business right now <clears throat> during the economic times that we live in so that when times are good and happy times are here again, who's been building muscle? These folks. And who's gonna be ready to kill it at that time? These folks. But if you weren't there for that, and look for the update, look for the highlight clips, look for things from that so you can understand what it's about. But the Vault Conference is coming up right here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, right there on the beach at the Diplomat Hotel, and we are looking forward to it. There is a tremendous amount of things. We've had speakers were announced that you're gonna hear from. You're gonna hear from the author of Unreasonable Hospitality, a fantastic book about the story of a restaurant in New York that became the number one rated restaurant under his leadership in the world. And we're also gonna have there's some people talking about competitive angles in leadership, most notably Mike Tyson and the GOAT himself, Tom Brady. Woo. So you're not, gonna, you're not one gonna miss that when that, uh, talking about uh, interview with Patrick and hearing all the different teams he worked with, how he built leadership around him, how he endured under crisis and pressure. It's just gonna be a really, really great event and management and all kinds of other courses, including one from yours truly, the biz doc, that I'm looking forward to. So join us for the vault. But um, boy, I, you know, and I feel like I'm, I'm in vault mode, <laughs> you know, right now, I'm um, gonna see if we can drop some pearls of goodness onto some folks here with what's happening in the market. And uh, along the way, if you got any questions, super chat and ask some questions, because at the very end, I'm gonna take some uh, ask the biz doc questions right here. But let's get right into it. So as usual, I was spending the weekend 
when not doing kid things, you know, and I've got a daughter that swims, a daughter that plays golf, and then of course my wife, we're doing things. And it just seems like all the stuff on real estate was coming in like a freight train until First Republic. And remember, we haven't been talking about banks crashing for a little while here. It's been weeks since we talked about that. And all of a sudden, First Republic, that everybody said, you know, how's First Republic doing? It was kind of sitting in the corner, looking a little green. Oh, I'm not feeling well. But everybody thought, you know, they'd had some Pepto-Bismol and they were doing all right. Well, apparently, all right, you know, went from I'm doing all right to looking a little green straight to hospice because the regulators stepped in and First Republic was suddenly put out there to get a competitive auction where the regulators are inviting other bigger banks. Hey, would someone like to buy this bank? You're going to get the stack of loans. You have the stack of depositors. The bank itself is in trouble. Other things are going to get taken care of. But who's going to take care of these loans? Who's going to take care of these customers? And that's what the other banks are bidding on. Well, it was PNC. And if you know anything about, um, I don't know, the Pittsburgh Pirates still play at PNC Park. <laughs> anyway, so you see PNC everywhere, but everybody knows who JP Morgan Chase is. And it turns out, I was looking around on Sunday and they said, well, it's a horse race between PNC and JP Morgan. But I saw the announcement on Sunday afternoon, JP Morgan buy a nose. So if you are with First Republic Bank, hang on, the FDIC has got your deposits under control and JP Morgan is now in control of your bank. So all the things that were going on with these banks in crisis was getting sorted out. But this goes back and go back a couple podcasts and listen to the BizDoc talk about that if you've got a medium-sized business, anything over half a million dollars in sales, you should be thinking about splitting your banking relationship. And here's what I talked about and I'm gonna talk about it again. If you're with First Republic right now, this week, you're having a bunch of migraine headaches. Let me tell you why. Because what's today? What's today? Monday. First of the month. Yes, first of the month. May what's first. due on the first of the month? Rent. Rent. So if you're a business <laughs> and you've leased a building, you have to pay rent. And if you've got a First Republic account, I don't know what's going on over there, but you might have issues there during the JP Morgan transition. Additionally, what do we, what do people do once a week? Half businesses do it once a week, other half businesses do it every two weeks. Pay their people. So you've got, move money over to your paychecks or ADP, whoever you use, Insperity, whoever you're using for HR processing and payroll processing. There you go. And so you have that going on. My goodness. Well, the BizDoc had been recommending that you split your banking relationship that if you've got a regional bank that you really like, remember I told you the story about being with a wonderful regional bank in Texas, my small business was, um, I had a small business on the side doing consulting work, even as I was working with Pat and the giant insurance company that he built, that I was privileged to support what was going on there. And here I was at this fantastic bank, Legacy Texas Bank, but then they get bought by a bank headquartered out of Houston that's doing a bunch of roll-ups. So I went through it, but that was like just a legitimate one company buying another. But why was I with the regional bank? Because I got local services and I knew everybody and it was convenient. I could go into a, say, hey, I need to get a $25,000 cashier's check for a vendor, you know, and I could go in and get that and I knew everybody. 
Well, you know, you go to the larger banks, you can get that too, but it was just the, the small regional banks just provide a little bit extra services there. So if you've got that going on, keep it. But I recommend going to one of the majors, B of A, and then you've got Chase, and you've got City, and then down there, fourth place, you have Wells Fraud Go. <laughs> so maybe you're not want to mess with that one too much because we all know they uh, open accounts for people. And I don't think that's even sorted out yet. <laughs> they still got a lot of lawsuits going on that. But I would get with City, I would get with Chase, or I would get with B of A and get yourself uh, an account that maybe you <coughs> only pay your rent out of. But you transfer money over once a month, only pay the rent. Why? Because if there's a banking crisis, now you've got two and you're in position to say one of your key relationships is with the big one and then you get all your local services from the small one. And again, if you're bigger than half a million, I honestly believe that that is the way you should do it. So now First Republic part of JP Morgan. So I'm reading all this, but what was I reading when all this interrupted me? I was doing research on real estate. And I was looking at the real estate industry and all the stuff that was going on. And I was like, this week, Jerome Powell <laughs> is gonna make an announcement. And he's gonna announce something about interest rates and it's going on today or tomorrow, right? It's a, they're getting together. The Fed is meeting as we speak. And you know, I've been talking about that little story where is it time for Jerome Powell to go upstairs <laughs> and see the cheerleader? Um, I think it's probably one more one more romp with the cheerleader for another quarter point. But with all that going on, I'm gonna to get to that in a minute. I was reading about real estate. And I was reading that in the big spike of activity we had in real estate, the average real estate agent that had less than two years of experience. So in other words, all the people that saw the real estate gold rush happening at the beginning of beginning of 2021, two years ago, because right now we're sitting here second quarter, May 1st of 2023. So those two years, everybody thought it was a gold rush. Boy, look what's going on in real estate. Gonna go get my real estate license. Well, I lived in Southern California and I was just talking to Patrick about this, but we remember 05, 06, 07 in Southern California where Everybody, the joke was, they left Home Depot and Walmart and they went out and got their real estate license. And things were so easy in California that tree stumps got real estate licenses. So you had tree stumps acting as realtors. You see my point here is like everybody was in there, home prices were going crazy. At any given time, there was like a 20% inventory rate. So one in five houses was on the market. Prices were going up. They were trading back and forth. They were doing a thing called range pricing. Like you can offer anything for this house between 500 and $520,000. That was a range for the asking price because they kept thinking that in another two months, that house is gonna go for 520. So you have all these real estate agents going out. So. We also had, from 2021 to 2023, a small pop that looked like that. By the way, in 2008, guess what happened to all those realtors that I was talking about? They went back to Walmart, they went back to Home Depot, and the long-term career realtors that had established networks and communities out there, they did fine. It may have been rough in 08 and 09, waiting for the market to come back, but 
They had a clientele, they still had clientele. They knew a neighborhood, they still knew the neighborhood. And all the ones that jumped into the pool got squeezed right out. Well, right now you've got a tremendous amount of people that jumped in to real estate right in the middle of this little mini gold rush we had. And would you like to know, Kellyanne, take a guess. You know what they earned in those two years? These are the real estate agents with less than two years of experience from 2021, 2023, the two years ending just a quarter ago. You know what, the, you know what their average was? I'm not sure. $8,800 a year. That's it? $8,800. I can't even say $9,000. There's not enough in there. If it was $8,900, I could round it up and say $9,000. I can't even do that. That's nothing. That's nothing. So the answer was they all got... Real estate is crazy and they all jumped in the pool and then the party stopped. Wow. The, the party stopped. Everybody found out it's not so easy to do that. So let's go take a look at what's going on here. The first thing I wanna go on is take a look at, let's go to the, um, let's go to the interest rates. Because we're talking a lot about interest rates. Everybody's waiting for the Fed right now. So let's go take a look. All right, and give me the thumbs up when everybody can see this chart. Okay, bingo, fantastic. So here is a chart showing interest rates since Q1 of 2020, and the gray bar on the far left represents a recession that happened there. Recession, beginning of 2020, so three years ago. And at that time, the blue line represents a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, that's what 30YFRM means, the blue line, and then a 15-year fixed rate mortgage, 15YFRM, represented by the green line. These are mortgages you and I would go out and get. You go to your bank, you go to B of A, said, hey, I'd like to get a mortgage, um, me and my, my spouse, my partner, whatever you got going on there, you know, we make about 140 a year between our incomes our, and our um, credit is like 750, so good, not 800, but we're not 650, we're right there, solid, really solid. You would be looking at these interest rates right here. So as you saw, if you went there at the beginning of 2020, right after the recession, your fixed rate mortgage for a 30 was running about 3%, three and a half, and then it would drop down and be under 3% all the way to January of 22. The 15-year mortgage, about a half percent less than that. You were already under 3% and you got as low as two and a half, two and a quarter through 21. And then something happened in January of 22. You see things start to go up. And between January of 22, right around 3% and November of 22, so just five months ago, more than doubling of the rates. So you see what the rates did during the year. And you, whoop, wrong arm. You see what's going, here they go, and they're going up, 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 up. Well, what did that do? Well, you would say, well, that just makes mortgages more expensive. Well, a couple other things happened in that. And by the way, the, the mortgages are still kind of flat hanging out right now. So your good credit, 700, 750 credit, 30-year mortgage right now, I looked the numbers up this morning, six and a quarter to six and a half. And if you pay a point or you pay some fees, you can be on the lower end of that range. And then the, um, the 15 year is about a half percent below that. Like you may find five and a halfs to you know, five and three quarters. And that's for your 15. Those are standard mortgages, nothing fancy, no adjustable rates. Don't pay 
two points to artificially bring the rate down. You're just trying to get a good mortgage without paying a lot of fees except the normal, normal things on your mortgage. And that's where you are right now. And so they're flattening and we're expecting Jerome Powell, and I'll talk about this more in a minute, to add about a quarter point right now to the federal interest rate that we've got going out there, prime rate. So what does this do? Well, what this does is, what if your parents are living in, pick a city in New Jersey, right? Elizabeth. Elizabethtown, New Jersey. That's where I'm from. And they're gonna sell their house. And they tell you, hey, we're gonna come down to Jupiter, Florida and retire. And we're gonna sell our house. Oh, mom, dad, that's great. And they're like, but we gotta, we only owe about 100,000 left on it. And we got like this 3% mortgage. If we sell that and we get 100,000 down there, it's like a 6.5% mortgage. We're gonna pay more on that. And we just took a look. Man, the prices of houses are way up. So we were thinking we were gonna sell in Elizabethtown for about half a million dollars and buy something for 250 to 300. Nice townhouse, few blocks from the beach, beautiful Jupiter to Cuesta area. You're gonna do that. Now we're finding out that townhouse is gonna be like 550, like within 100 grand of our house here. And we're trying to downsize and our, our monthly payments actually gonna go up a bit if we get the same $100,000 mortgage. You know what? We're not going to put the house on the market. We're going to stay put and see how this shakes out. Guess what? A bunch of people did what they did. Now, there are people that got displaced for work and layoffs, and 900 people a month are moving to uh, Florida, and I think it's 450 a month or something. Uh, you can check me on that. They're actually moving to Texas. No state income tax, a lot of jobs and opportunities, and they've been displaced, or they're coming from a high taxation state like California. New York, Illinois, there's a whole thing coming. But the point is, why is the home inventory staying low? Because with the interest rates high, people, a lot of people, even though there's some that are layoff that are moving to Florida 900 a day, are moving to Texas 450 a day, other people are like, you know what, I'm not gonna sell my house. Because if I'm downsizing, you know, I got problems. Houses are, are, are way up in price in Florida, way up in price in, in many parts of Texas. I don't know. I don't know if this is the right time to do it. So guess what? Inventory gets stuck. And let's go take a look graphically what that inventory looks like. So pop me up the inventory chart. I need, I need the blue bars. Okay, take a look at this. This tells you, like you see those numbers, 1210, 1310, 1260, those are in millions. So that's 1.3 million homes for sale. So as you could see, back in 2020, there was a million and a half homes for sale. A million and a half in 2020. And then you see a couple times it pops down and then look at it, now you have a problem. Right now there's only a million houses for sale. Actually, there's less than a million houses for sale right now. So there is 33% less homes for sale than there were in July of 2020. And you see it's been dropping. There were two almost identical peaks in the middle of uh, 21 and the middle of 22. So what's going on? That's the inventory. So there's not inventory. So guess what? If inventory stays low, even though interest rates are high, prices are staying high in places like Florida and certain parts of Texas, uh, Tennessee, the prices aren't budging. So the homes that are out there for sale, there's no pressure to make them go down. There's not a competitive market of inventory. There you have it. 
That is why there's very few transactions happening. If there's few houses for sale, then there's fewer houses sold and fewer transactions and fewer new mortgages. Mortgages are down still at least 75% region by region in the US over the last year. And so that's, that's what's happening. Okay, Tom, you always sound like such a bear. I'm not a bear, I'm actually a bull, but I'm really kind of impassioned about the numbers that I see and talking, getting away from the spin we see on TV and talking about the numbers and the reality and what they mean and what you and I can do, whether we're getting ready to move across the USA or we're trying to run a business and this represents a piece of commercial property we're buying because the same rules apply for commercial property. Even though there's another other forces happening on commercial property, if you've got warehouse space, you're doing well, you're gonna be able to sell it. If you've got office space, you're sweating. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So here you have what's going on. So what do people see? Well, here's what I see. I'm calling it. The biz doc is calling it right now. I'm calling the bottom of the bad statistical time for housing. In other words, I think Jerome Powell's raising a quarter point this week. And I think with that quarter point raise, is going to represent the peak of interest rates for housing. Now, I know housing interest rates, some of you are very technical and it's tied to other bonds and things like that. I get it. I get it. There's other forces. But I think this is going to be the last interest rate raise, and then he's going to go flat for a while. And then the Fed gets together every six weeks. So I think he's getting together um, June 15th, 16th time frame, and the end of July. <clears throat> I don't think rates will be raised at those two. And by the time we get into early September, because July in six weeks takes you, I believe, right to Labor Day. I believe we might hear the Fed talking about dropping rates a quarter point, not at the September meeting, but after it. So I'm calling bottom on, I think we're at the peak of what we're gonna see interest rates. I'm also calling bottom of, I see a cooling in the home prices. And a lot of the big banks that I was reading their opinions, they see it too. They're projecting that we are going to have a mild recession, maybe third quarter, fourth quarter, or fourth quarter, first quarter. And with that mild recession, that will be a little signal to the Fed that we need to loosen up. And then he gives maybe a quarter point back. That's why I believe that the interest rates you're seeing on mortgage rates and the associated bonds that cover those, I think we're seeing the peak of the bad news. We're slowly gonna see toward the end of the year is that coming down. And I believe you're gonna see a little bit of a loosening up in housing supply going into third quarter because I think people are gonna, that need to move homes are gonna put a little more inventory out there and with the recession coming, they're gonna be worried that there's fewer people capable of buying them. Because in a recession, you know, you get a little bit of wage stagnation and other things go with it. So I'm calling bottom. So for the record, the biz doc, May 1st, I'm calling bottom on some of the bad stats. I think housing is gonna start cooling in certain markets. Maybe Miami won't, but I think generally across the USA, you're gonna see a cooling of about 5% of uh, housing prices 
in third quarter through the end of the year, that that's when you're gonna see it happen. And I think that the interest rates we're seeing now on homes, probably as high as we're gonna see them. And with what the Fed does, even though I expect them to raise a rate right now, a quarter point, I think we're gonna see interest rates toward the end of the year cooling. Those two things with the recession comes together, I think housing is gonna start getting better. In other words, more on the market, less unfettered you know, pricing growth, and a little bit more affordable mortgages all going in to Q4. So I think October, November is we're really gonna see that. So if you were thinking of a house, I might look in October, November for signs that your market might start to show you opportunities here. But remember, be careful buying on peak and never buy the most expensive house on your block. Let somebody else have that, that uh, wonderful uh, honor of being the most expensive house on the block, making it the most expensive to sell. So that's where I see that. So also this has been, we move on now. I'm moving on to startups. So with all the stuff going on, you know, the monetary, the fiscal markets and money markets, everything I'm talking about, don't just happen to real estate and residential real estate. They also happen to commercial real estate. And can we show that article? So look at what's happening in commercial real estate. Commercial real estate, yeah, check this out. From the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much, Wall Street Journal. I'm not showing the whole article, we're showing a headline. And it's article that just came out from the journal. There is a $300 million office tower that is mostly empty that they're looking for offers on and they think, they think that they may get sub hundred million dollars for this thing. They're thinking it could be an 80%. 80% of 300 million, you know, is 24. 24 off 300, 240 off 300 is 60. They're looking at thinking it's probably gonna be sub 185 range, but it could be all the way down at 60. And this is on California Street. And if you know anything about California Street in San Francisco, it's a beautiful street. There's a lot of great buildings on there. This isn't off to the side in some little alcove. This isn't a nice area, but it shows you what's happening to commercial real estate. Commercial real estate market is in trouble, in trouble. If, you're looking, if you are paying attention, there are areas of this nation where there are two and three story office buildings being torn down and very neat, orderly, one story warehouse oriented buildings are being put in their place. Warehouse space and warehouse orientation, like you own a flooring company and you have a few trucks and you store all your flooring, you need a warehouse, but you want a nice warehouse, nice area of town, you don't want your trucks vandalized. Guess what? That kind of stuff, if you're in that business, you're enjoying a bit of a heyday. But what's happening in commercial real estate on the big shiny buildings, we're in trouble. No less than Charlie Munger, 99-year-old Charlie Munger yesterday made a comment in advance of the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. He said, listen, there's a lot of bad paper out there putting pressure on banks and there's also a credit crunch. And so if you're in the big shiny class one office building business right now, times are kind of tough. So see, it's not just residential real estate, everything gets affected. Well, who is moving into those buildings? Who's renting space in those buildings? A lot of new companies and expanding companies. If we're having a recession, well, that means companies are not necessarily expanding. And if we're having you know, a credit crunch, means that there's less money out there to be flowing around to even startups. 
So check this out. Give me the, the uh, startup chart, the multicolored chart. Okay, and let's see the title of this. So we can see the title of that. I guess we can't see the title of it. Um, up above. Yep. Well, this is the number of uh, mergers between startup companies. So this is a startup company, two to three years old, doing pretty well, identifies another, a smaller startup that's doing something similar and they want to bring the technology or the companies together. This is very common. Uh, some people call it the Pac-Man effect, where the middle-sized companies buy up a couple of the small companies, acquire their teams. If you're just getting a team in technology, sometimes that's called an aqua-hire. We'll take a look at what's going on here. This is pretty, um, this is pretty heavy duty. Uh, it went from 137 deals in uh, Q4 of, of last year to you know, 30 deals this year. This is crazy. Um, but what it's showing is that what's happening right now in, in, in terms of just financial availability is also happening to startups. So this is, the market's getting crushed. So there's sometimes a small startup looks for a middle-sized startup to go merge with because they've, they got good technology, they got something together, they're making it work, and they really want to join with the big one to come together, and then they have the teams come together. Well, this shows you that's a normal thing. That is a normal thing that happens in a healthy market. Absolutely normal. Well, guess what? It's not happening right now because there is a credit crunch and there is less money being invested quarter to quarter in venture. And if I'm that middle-sized startup, I need to raise another round of financing so that I can go buy that small startup with their 10 people, pay a couple million dollars for it and get that technology. I don't have the money to do that. That's what's happening right now. And so uh, I think that's also a sign of the looming recession, which means that if you're a mid-sized startup, and there's a message for all of us, you know, right now is the time to be working on keeping your balance sheet as strong as you can, being very careful about each new hire you make, being very careful about when you're gonna have to go out and um, get financing, because let me give you an example. What if your startup, you say, hey, I'm a technology startup and I'm worth $50 million and I'm gonna go out and get 10 million. Well, 10 and 50 is 60, and so then the uh, investor would get 10 on 60, or about 16, 70% of your company. But what happens if the valuations are also compressed in a tough market? And they say, I'm sorry, I only think your valuation is 40, but I'll give you the 10. Well, 10 on 40 is 50, so 10 on 50 is 20%. They would get 20% of your money. 20% of your company. So go from 16% to 20%, it all adds up. So you'd have to give up more of your company. And at smaller valuations and bigger amounts of money needed, it just gets worse. You can find in a tough market, if you're a great company, you can find people that'll say, look, I'll give you 60 so that you can go two years, but I'm not gonna, but it's not 50. This is gonna be 35. It's a 35 million valuation, I'll give you the 50. And then they've got 20 on, on 55. So suddenly they've got you know, a huge percent of your, of your company. But that, that is just the facts of life. So now is the time to not need big money 
if you can't prove that through EBITDA and other traction that you are really in position and you're growing your value. If you're still pre-EBITDA, this is a time where you're gonna see valuations pinched and it's gonna be tougher time raising money. And that is what's one of the facts that I saw this weekend looking at it, which I thought was um, uh, pretty crazy. So I was also, I saw this thing on Apple, which I thought was very, very interesting. And Apple is rumored to be going out, what were they saying, Kellyanne? What was that, 4th or 5th of May? Uh, May 4th. May 4th, Apple's going out on May 4th to make their earnings announcement. And remember, the last time they went out, they announced that they had a little bit of a sales decline. <clears throat> so even mighty Apple was saying, hey, around the world, things are not going like this. You know, to the moon, there's a little bit of moderation. And so they said sales declined about 5%. So it's like, <whistles> coming down a little bit. Well, now, when they come out tomorrow, and I'm not saying short Apple, I think Apple's still in a strong position, but here it is. The iPad and the Mac are expected to see steep decreases in revenue, while the iPhone may improve somewhat or be flat, being helped by the ongoing resolution of supply chain snags dating back to COVID shipping crunches. Yikes. So even mighty Apple is starting to feel it in terms of what I call a pre-recession economy. And I think there's a lot of indicators out there that we're in that recession right now. And we're just, and there's so much political stuff on TV about, you know, on all the news show about whether we are or aren't. All I can say is look at the housing market, look at mortgage. If those mortgage brokers, they're crushed. Realtors are crushed. People aren't selling homes. Look, there's a lot of stuff going on. And so, as they like to say, boy, there's a lot of crying going on for you to be telling me that nobody's hurt. So, yeah, that's what I see. And so I, even Apple is feeling it in kind of a, a pre-recession economy. So let's go talk about the recession. So this week, um, nearly unanimously, you had the major banks nearly unanimously expecting the Fed, as I said, to raise rates a quarter point, and and they, Jerome Powell and his fellow Fredsters, Fedster Fredsters, um, see inflation taming, meaning they may not see inflation um, going up anymore, maybe getting tamed, and so and as I pointed out, you know, not raising rates June 13th, 14th, July 25th, 26th, or September 19th, 20th and maybe a rate drop on October 31st, November 1st, which means Cinco de Mayo should be a happy day this week. Let me tell you, you're gonna see something. I believe you're gonna see it. So the BizDoc is calling this. I think this week's culminating Cinco de Mayo, you're gonna see a bit of a stock rally because I think they're gonna be happy to hear that Jerome Powell's only raising a quarter. They're assuming a quarter, so what they like to say is that is built in. So in other words, the pricing for most stocks that have volatile exposure to financial markets, which is just about everybody, unless you don't need to raise capital and you're just flush with your own capital like Apple would be, and so you, you, you don't necessarily get impacted by the, the Fed as much as other companies. Nonetheless, I think Cinco de Mayo, we're gonna see a little bit of a rally this week and so Cinco de Mayo, everybody having a margarita and, and toasting to the fact 
They think the rate increases are over and they think it's gonna be a flat summer and maybe we see things coming back. So we always talk about this, but I wanna show you this. This is very, very cool. Uh, give me my pie chart here. Two thirds of economists. There we go. Two thirds of economists expect a US recession, a downturn in the next year. Well, we're sitting here May 1st and the downturn between now and May 1st, this is why I keep saying Q3, Q4, some of them think it's then, Q4, Q1, some of them think it's then. But you have 67 saying, gonna be a recession, 13% saying soft landing and um, minor recession, and then 20% saying a hard landing, but not a recession. And what a hard landing is, more unemployment, a lot of um, a strife happening at the consumer level, but we don't actually have a recession. But we do have a time where we have to build up jobs again, so a lot of people that lost those jobs can go find them, and it may result in geographic migrations of people looking for those jobs. Specifically, the Sunbelt states that seem to be doing so much better. So when we talk about this, this is what I mean. Um, and this is Bloomberg, Survey of Economists, April 21st to 26th last week. So thank you to the folks at Bloomberg. We're using their chart here to convey it. But you can see, you know, so people are, like I say, there's a lot of people saying this. And so then you get politicians and government saying, oh, we don't see a recession next year. Some of those people need that to be true because they're worried about approval ratings for Congress, approval rating for the president. You know what? We're looking at a bunch of people who's, who make a living off money markets and the financial markets, and this is what they're seeing. And so I'm, I'm kind of with them, but I do think Cinco de Mayo's, we're gonna end this week on an upbeat in terms of we're looking to the future that is gonna be so much better, but we're not gonna be out of the woods. As a matter of fact, we still may see more layoffs and the, the impact of the recession itself. So be careful who's celebrating. It doesn't always mean that it's good on your street. So that's, um, you know what, we should write that down, make a t-shirt. So be careful what you celebrate because it may be that things aren't going good on your street, even though you're feeling layoffs, you're seeing the stock market up and you're seeing people saying that the real estate market may be getting a little better toward the end of the year and mortgages may get a little better, but you may not be feeling it at your company that laid you off and on your street. This is normal. You may even feel the effects of recession, but People that are celebrating says that eventually it can get better for even you where you're living if you're in a tough uh, market, tough city in the U.S. that gets a hard impact. Uh, I, it's going to be a tough year, I think, for a lot of people, but I think this time next year we're going to be coming out of it. I don't think it's going to be like roaring like the 90s, but I think we're gonna, it's going to be a better place, marginally better. So what else is happening? So let's talk about things that people buy. And let's talk about Walmart for a second. So over the weekend, um, Walmart made a couple announcements actually going into the weekend. And they were saying they were really going to get out of the direct to consumer brand business. And this, this marks the end of a, a big era for Walmart. And here's what happened. We all know who Bonobos is, right? Am I saying that right? I don't ever, I don't ever buy, I've never bought any of those, you know, anything that brand, but Bonobos. I think and, so. And they, um, Walmart sold them for $75 million. And it's a fashion brand. And it's a markdown from the $310 million Walmart paid for them 
for this men's fashion brand in 2017. I think it was 2017. Yeah, I think so. So I think it's been exactly six years. So in six years, 75% of the value. So in other words, Walmart, um, and what is the Walmart brand? Great, uh, great value. Is that the Walmart brand? Yeah, I think it's great value. I think Walmart's brand is a thing called, you know, great value. And so it's on light bulbs, it's on macaroni, on a lot of things. And it's on towels. And so Walmart sells that as a store brand. Well, what Walmart did is they got into direct to consumer and they bought a bunch of fashion brands that they were gonna have at Walmart. And you know what, this stuff, there is a long line of efforts that have been made by Pennies, by Sears, by Target, over the years to bring a celebrity in with a celebrity brand into Target. But then you see people just kind of go into that, the basic house brands because that's what Target and Walmart are known for, a reasonable quality house brand. And here they go. And so um, this was actually Walmart selling Bonobos at this markdown price was the last of five e-commerce that they bought. Now check this out. Um, they bought, uh, what else did they sell? They sold Mod Cloth, Shoes.com, Moose Jaw, uh, and Bare Necessities, and Eloqui. Eloqui. They sold all those. Uh, they sold Eloqui in April 2023, sold Bare Necessities in, in August of 2020. Um, they, and then they uh, sold Moose Jaw. I think Dick's Sporting Goods bought Moose Jaw. I'm not sure about that, but I thought they sold that. And um, they were out buying all this stuff to augment the brands in Walmart. And Walmart missed the mark here. People come to Walmart for great value and they're curating other brands that they're bringing into Walmart that they're selling at Walmart. Bunch of sporting goods you can go back there and get Nike shoes at Walmart. You get a variety of things. And here they were bringing in brands that now they're gonna be owning and managing these brands. No, Walmart forgot who it was. And let me explain what, that, what I mean. Let's do a little case study here. Walmart is a retailer. A retailer is a distributor. A distributor distributes and retails stuff. You don't get out there in the stuff business except for your base value house brand. So they're like, we're gonna get everything from batteries to dishcloths on this house brand and we're gonna sell it. And that's what we're gonna do. But everything else we're gonna put in there, good, better, best, and we're gonna give you other choices throughout the store to, for opportunities to buy. That is a retailer and a distributor. It makes perfect sense to have the entry level house brand and then to select what's hot, what's not, and sell that stuff. That's it, you're a retailer. But somewhere Walmart decided, you know, um, back in 2017 timeframe, six years ago, to start buying crap. And they bought a bunch of these things. And now they've spent the last four years saying, oh, I shouldn't have done that, 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 and selling these things. And so you, you have basically, and this applies to anyone. Let's say you're in business, you're a small business person, and you are in the landscaping business. And you got landscaping, and you got trucks, and you got guys, and you've got zones of the, of the community that you've got tremendous market share. Because your guys do a really good job, good job edging, good job in the flower beds, you know, as they say, cut, mow, and blow, they, you know, cut the shrubs, mow the grass, blow all the, the trimmings off, make it nice and beautiful for when you come home, it looks sharp. And that's what you want. Well, all of a sudden you decide, well, wait a minute. 
you know, maybe I can get into tree pruning. And so you get into tree pruning. Well, that makes sense because while you're doing basic landscaping, you look up and you tell people, he says, you know, I do tree trimming and I've got insurance and we could trim your trees. Okay, so you get into tree trimming, that's fine. And then all of a sudden you decide that you're gonna get into building decks. Because you notice whenever you go around, you'll see older decks and you say, maybe these people need someone to come along, give them a bid and to rebuild their back patio deck. Doesn't look so nice anymore. And I'm visiting all these houses. I could see all these customers every week. I could just knock on doors. Hey, I'm, every, I'm here every week, cutting your grass, trimming your trees. And I noticed your back deck. And so you go get a contract license. Stop. That is a perfect example of now the teams that you have doing landscaping and now tree trimming, you've got these trucks, you've got this equipment. Now some of it's similar, but now you gotta get a general contractor license. And now, you gotta, now you're competing against every contractor that's gonna be doing those back decks. That is an example of now you're crossing over to something that seems logical, but it's actually not. And it's not gonna help you. And you think you can make more money doing it. I would say, find three or four great contractors that do backyard spaces and make a deal with them. If I can refer to you, will you give me a couple hundred bucks for referring you? Because I cut people's lawns and I'm on good terms with them. I know them really well. I do tree trimming and I could tell them, hey, your, your back deck's looking a little sad there. I know somebody that does complete refurbishes your back deck, including proper drainage and all the things that goes with that. Um, I know a guy, his name is Fred. His name is Javier, go talk to him. That's the way to do it. Walmart decided they were gonna get into being the at-risk brand. Walmart is a retailer, a distributor, a hero-making machine. If you're willing to bid your wholesale costs low enough for Walmart, and that's a case study for another day. <laughs> but they went out and they bought these brands. Oh, we'll put the brands in there, they'll be our brands, and we'll make money on the brand, and we'll make money on distribution. That was the thinking. We're gonna make the hey, we'll make margin on the stuff and we'll also make the retail margin that we normal make at the register. So we'll make margin at the factory, margin at the register. So it seems logical until people fall out of love with some of the brands you buy. Now what? Well, guess what? Walmart sells them all off and one of them is sold at a 75% discount to its pre previous price. Can you believe that? And so there's other pain in there too, because there's some brands that weren't even bought by Walmart. And let's go check this out. Show me the, um, the, the chart that shows Warby Parker and a few others here. So check this out. <clears throat> These are all fashion brands. Now fashion brand is what people call a hit driven business. A hit driven business is this, music, movies, you make five movies, four of them are only so-so, two of them don't even make it to the box office. The old thing that you should be able to read about in the movie business is straight to video. You know, you had a couple bad Steven Seagal movies that just go straight to video and straight to HBO. They never make it to the box office. That's a hit-driven business. You have to have a Titanic where you make buckets of money to make up for the, the ones that are complete losers. But when you add everything together, you have a business that makes a profit even though you're in the hit-driven business and it could be feast or famine. Well, check this out. <coughs> Fashion is a hit-driven business. 
If you've been in business forever, like Tom Ford and your classic, and then um, who bought Tom Ford? Estee Lauder? I think so. Yeah, for like $2.6 billion, who looked that up for me? Yeah. And feed me that back? So that's one thing. But then there's a lot of people that haven't been around very long. Let's go take a look. Allbirds, Warby Parker, and Bonobos. So here you have it. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If it's Bonobos or Bonobos, <laughs> either way, right to me. <laughs> it's, I'll just change it to no cash boss instead of <laughs> Bonobos. It's like no cash boss, no sales boss. So you can see here, market cap of 310 million, now evaluation of 75 million. Warby Parker at the IPO, a market cap of $4.5 billion. Now, a market cap of $1.2 billion. Ladies and gentlemen, if that was 1.3, that would be, 1.5, that would be 33%. So it's below 33%. It's like 30% of what the market cap was. Somebody lost a whole lot of money on Warby Parker on the way down. You know, you don't need a new pair of glasses to see that that sucks, you know? <laughs> so not to pick on Warby Parker, they need glasses. but. Then you have Allbirds, $2.1 billion. Now you could have it for $190 million. Holy cow. You know, there's a problem there. Well, guess what? Those are new fashion brands that are in the hit-driven business. So if you're Walmart, you don't want to be in the hit-driven business. You're in the low-cost distributor, reach every American through Walmart and Sam's Club business. You're in the retailer distributor business. Don't forget who you are. Even mighty Walmart can forget who they are. Oh, by the way, remember they went into digital online? They were going to compete with um, Amazon, and they bought, uh, who'd they buy, Jet? I think they bought Jet. They wrote it off. They wrote it off. Okay. So the answer is, you, if you're going to be the new Amazon, but you're also going to be Walmart, you know, I understand what Walmart's thinking. we got to take a risk. But this is an example of taking a risk of, being a general contractor and being the best landscaper in your city that do everything. You plant trees, you cut trees up that have come down from a, an ice storm, you prune trees and you make yards look beautiful. That's your business and you know every inch of it. Um, getting into being a general contractor would not be smart. But here's a perfect example of somebody as, even as big as Walmart making a mistake like that and forgetting who you are and getting into the hit-driven fashion business rather than being in the kingmaker retail and distribution business. So that's it. And I saw we had a couple blips come up here. Do we have some interesting questions? I think we got one or two. We so do. let's roll let's roll one up here and see if I can see it. Can Ask the biz doc. Okay, last time you said you ordered an EV Fisker Ocean. Do you believe in Fisker? Do you think it has a future in the market? So, first of all, fair warning. Yes, I bought a Fisker. Yes, I own some Fisker shares. So, I'm an investor. And what I'm going to say is, I wouldn't buy the car if I didn't believe in it. I believe in the company. I believe in the car. But they still have to deliver. I'm waiting for my Fisker Ocean 1. It's one of the launch versions. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Really looking forward to it. Because <clears throat> I've got the red missile that runs on dead dinosaurs, and then I've got electric. So I'm trying to be, that's, that's going to be my way of living a hybrid life. Um, you know, <laughs> driving, you know, 
fossil fuel on certain days and electricity on other days, but it takes fossil fuel to make electricity, which is another story. But Fisker, if I didn't believe in the company, I wouldn't have bought the car and I, and I wouldn't be an investor. And so I am um, absolutely looking forward to it. But let me say this, this is not a plug for Fisker. Fisker has to deliver. They have to hit their manufacturing numbers. They have to hit their delivery of cars. And when the cars get delivered, they have to stay on the good side of the JD Power survey of initial quality. They can't have a bunch of glitches. And they have to deliver the range that they say they're gonna do. So any company, starting with Fisker, who I support, hear me now and hear me clearly. The BizDoc's an investor in Fisker. The BizDoc has a Fisker coming, brand new, one of the launch vehicles. But Fisker, like any company, has to deliver. Quality, delivery on time, and everything that goes with being a great electric car company. And by the way, it doesn't mean I dislike Tesla or, or any, other, any of the others. It just means I'm excited about Heinrich Fisker and his opportunity to make a huge comeback story after the initial Fisker, one, probably one of the most beautiful cars ever designed. And if you go look at the original Fisker electric vehicle, tell me that's not a beautiful car. That was just style and beauty. And that's Henrik. Henrik is a car designer par excellence. And I hope they make it. So that's how I feel about, uh, feel about Fisker. So there's a qualified answer. What was the other question? We have one more. Please highlight exactly what bank depositors customers should look at when choosing bank for deposits. What do we need to review? Where do we get these docs? Super important, please discuss. So if you're with a regional bank, you can look up, um, you could you know, search for the following. Small bank or independent bank risk ranked. And you'll find articles where people have listed them all. Business Insider does it, Bloomberg does it. You'll be able to find those and if you've got one of your local banks that you're thinking of working with and you're looking right there and they're at the top of the risk chart, maybe that's not the local bank to be working with. But I believe you should be working with one of the majors like JP Morgan, B of A, um, excuse me, Chase is the brand on the street for banking and B of A and Citi. I would go with one of those as my major. Um, unless something catastrophic happens, they're gonna be fine. And you'll note that it was JP Morgan that's been part of the bailout that's been buying some of these others. And then for your small regional bank, just search for that. Regional bank risk chart, or maybe the name of your regional bank. Put the name of your regional bank and say, saying on risk profile. And you'll probably find it in a list, but that's what I would go to look for. And there's a lot of good people out there that are ranking the banks and putting them up there. That's a really good question. That's where I would go to look at it. And if you find your local bank, it's kind of toward the top of the risk list or the bottom, depending on how it's ranked. If it's best risk at the top or most at risk to least at risk, I'd want to be in the bottom third or the top third, whatever the good end of that chart is, and then feel pretty reasonable about that, that local bank. But I would split it with what I do. Put my rent every month into this big bank, just pay one transaction a month out of the big bank checking account and they get all your good services and support that you like from your smaller bank and there you have it. <clears throat> and now if something happens, you can quickly make payroll out of your, the other bank, transferring funds. So I would have my, my rent there plus a little bit of a savings account. And that's basically my, that's my financial fire extinguisher <laughs> waiting for something bad to happen. 
Really great question. That's a great question. Thank you for asking. That's the way the BizDoc would do the research. And so, for this week, we have wrapped up. Thank you for the questions. I love the questions. Ask questions in the comments down below. Hit the bell, subscribe, and get notifications. We're here live every Monday, 1130 um, East Coast time, 830 Pacific time, and we're here to leave you better than we found you. And as you know, that's what I always say. I'm Tom Ellsworth with the BizDoc, and I hope I left you better than I found you. Go check out the Valuetainment conferences and the other great stuff at Valuetainment.com. We have articles. We've got the Vault Conference coming up. Don't miss it. See you next week.